0: there's a picture that I keep in my office right by my desk. I I hung it up specifically for um, to be a reminder to me of a couple of things. I have two pictures in my office. One is, is of uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which I'm going to talk about at the end of the message. The other is a picture that um, somebody in our church gave to me several years ago. I, I didn't think about Actually showing you the picture, I wish I would have. But it's a picture that was taken, I believe, in 1902, in Cedar Creek, which is near Dallas. And it's a, it's a baptism service. And we're going to actually be having some baptisms over the next couple of weeks and a few weeks coming up to Easter, which I think you're really going to love and enjoy. But. It's a picture. the guy's the pastor, it's, it's a church, and the pastor's down in the water with about 25 people. The pastor's name, I believe, was Jeremiah Benjamin Moon, which is a cool name. if I ever have any more kids, I don't think about naming my kid that. but uh, he was down in the water, his hand was in the air, he 's looking up like this, and then all these people are, are there and they're being baptized and, and it's just and I, and, I, and I keep that on my, my wall for probably a reason that you wouldn't think about. and I try to remind myself that our time together here on earth as a church is just very short. It's very small. Um, Every one of those people in that picture have gone on to glory. They've gone on to heaven. And and I use it as a reminder that our time here at the Austin Stone, the people in this room, our time as a church is so limited. We have 20, 30, maybe 40 years at the most, probably not for me, I'm probably way past that mark, And, and to make our mark on church history to make our dent into church history, to do the thing that God has called us to do and to be as a church, and then it's over. And then we pass the torch to the next generation, and they've got 20, 30, 40 years to make their mark on church history, to make a dent in the Great Commission. And then they pass the torch and then it's over. And today we want to stop kind of as we're in the middle of two series. We just got finished with the gospel of Mark, which we've been in for a couple of years. And we're about to jump into the book of Ephesians next week, which is going to be really good. We're going to start that. So you want to be here. And we just want to take a couple of weeks and we want to talk about and just remind ourselves of kind of the church that God has called us to be. <laughs> There's some specific principles that God has shown us through the Bible over the years about how we want to spend our time together on our 20, 30, 40 year um, part of the Great Commission or part of church history. And that's what we want to talk about today, specifically how God has called us to be a church that is for our city. Now when you think about when you think about churches and and you guys are a part of a church, you're in a church right now you're going to leave here someday, probably go to another city. You're going to be a part of a church there. Some of you are going to get married. You're going to raise your kids in a church. You need to think about the kind of church that you want to raise your kids in, the kind of church you want to be a part of, the kind of church you want to be. A lot of times church fall into one of three categories. And the categories fall into the different ways that the church views their city. I'm going to talk about that for a second, then we're going to jump into Jeremiah. But really, the vast majority of churches in this country view their city in one of three ways. They view their city, a lot of them with apathy. Talk about that in a second. A lot of churches view their city with animosity. Talk about that. And a lot of churches view their city with, or, or have an attitude towards it of imitation. Now, the first kind of church that a lot of churches fall into is a church that views their city and the people of the city that they're in with apathy. And I call churches like this churches that are in the city. They're just in the city. Um, There are hundreds of churches in Austin, Texas. uh, Hundreds of churches in Texas. Hundreds of churches, thousands of churches in our country. The vast majority of them really, you could just classify them as a church that's simply in the city. They're located geographically in the city limits of some town, some suburbs, some city. But because they view the people of their city and they view the city itself with such apathy that they make little or no impact whatsoever on the city. They, they have church services, they have programs for their people, but that's where their impact on the city ends. Uh, maybe you've been at a church like that. It's just simply a church that's in the city. Now, there's another kind of church, and some of you maybe grew up in a church like this. These are becoming less and less prevalent, thankfully. And this is a church that their attitude towards the city they're in is more of one of animosity. they don't actually, they're not apathetic towards the city that they're in, but they oftentimes despise the city that they're in. I call this kind of church a church that's against the city, right? They're not just in it, but they're actually against it. It, the, The mindset behind the folks in this kind of church is that the the, the people of the church are good and the people of the city are bad. Their mindset is that the the people of the church are right and the people of the city are wrong and evil and need to be punished. You can actually see this in the scripture. That's kind of what Jonah was dealing with. Remember the prophet Jonah? What did God say to Jonah? He said, Jonah, I want you to go to the evil city of Nineveh. I want you to preach there. I want you to call that city to repentance. You remember what Jonah said? Jonah said, I'm not doing it. And he took off. He went to Tarsus. God had to send a whale, bring him back, swallow him, spit him out on the beach in Nineveh. He didn't want to do it. And why did he not want to do it? Why did he not want to preach the gospel of these people? Why did he not want to see the restoration of Nineveh? Why did he not want to see the revival of Nineveh? It's because they were evil. They were evil. They were evil people, and he thought they needed to be punished. Believe it or not, there's a lot of churches that have that mentality. I, I grew up in one. I've worked in one. It's this idea that the the, the church is good, the city is bad, and so therefore the people of the church just completely isolate themselves from the culture of the city. They kind of stand up and look down on the city with disdain. That's a church that's against the city. Now there's a third kind of church. And this is a church that I think is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. And this is a church, kind of church that doesn't have animosity towards the city that they're in. They're not apathetic towards the city that they're in, but they actually seek to imitate the city that they're a part of. Uh, I call this kind of church a church that's of the city, church that's of the city. They wanna, they wanna look like the city. They wanna feel like the city. They wanna act like the city. Now, at first glance, when you hear that, that sounds sort of right. And there are parts of that mentality. There's parts of churches like that that are right. But, but oftentimes, here's the problem as in an attempt to imitate their city and be relevant to the city, these churches get so assimilated into the culture of the city that they stop looking like Christians. They stop looking like the people of God. Okay, and that's, by the way, what Jesus was referring to in Revelation chapter 2. Because he's talking to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And he comes to the church in Ephesus, he's speaking to them, and he says, there's some things you guys are doing really well. There's one thing you're doing not so well at all, He said, you've lost your first love. But he tells them all the stuff they do well as a church. And one of the things that Jesus said that they're doing well as a church is that they were not doing the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, actually, he said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And you ask yourself, well, that's a pretty strong word, Jesus. Why do you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans? And what were the deeds of the Nicolaitans? And you go and you study and you realize that the Nicolaitans were a church there in the first century And they were, and what they'd done is they were trying to be culturally relevant. They were trying to make the gospel relevant to the culture. But the problem was, is they bent so far to the culture that they stopped being salt and light in that culture. That they looked so much like the secular city that they ceased to be able to speak truth into that secular city. And I'm telling you, I see churches like that more and more and more that are popping up around the country. Um, their, Their churches, and they'll even admit this, that their number one goal, just toss the Bible out the window, number one goal is to be culturally relevant. They think they have to be relevant before people will listen to them, which is ridiculous because the last time I checked, the Bible has been the most relevant literature of every generation ever, period. End of story. But anyway, another sermon, another day. But here's the thing. In this attempt to be culturally relevant, they actually... I believe lose their relevance in the culture. There was a, an illustration uh, I want to give you that I, I looked this up to. I'd heard it and I thought maybe it was rumor, but it's not. This actually happened. You can look it up too. Not while I'm preaching, but after I'm preaching. But um, there's a megachurch here in the U.S. This happened a couple of years ago, I think. And the pastor of the church decided that he wanted to do a series on sex, and he titled the series "Sex Experiment." and um, which sounds like a flavor of gum to me, but anyway, it's goofy. He call it sex experiment, and uh, the pastor challenges married couples throughout the series to have sex um, every day for seven days. And you know, if you're single, you're like, "Oh, thanks, pastor, for that reminder." Um, but then married guys are, I like it. But anyway, they did this thing where they're having sex every day for seven weeks, and. This pastor, he thought it'd be really cool if he and his wife, and y'all think I'm making this stuff, stuff up, go look it up. This pastor put a bed on the roof of his church and did like a live simulcast from the bed. I don't, I don't think they actually had sex, but they did like a live simulcast from the bed on top of the roof of the church. And the whole goal of this thing was just to like, I don't know, talk about sex. And, 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 and you hear that and you go, well, Matt, that's dumb. And you'd be right. That's stupid. And the problem was, and I could just tell you story after story after story of of people that in an attempt to be relevant have just made their church into a circus. And the problem with that is that there comes a point in time, I think biblically and in the life of every church, where the pastor of the church the leadership of the church and the church itself needs to be able to speak into the culture where the culture itself is running from the precepts of the Lord and and you as a church and and especially folks that speak from the stage have got to be able to stand up and with power and clarity and authority and wisdom say, no, that is sin. That's sin. I don't care what the culture says. This is what God Almighty says and this is sin. And you've got to be able to have that power, that authority, that wisdom, that maturity, and to be able to be heard by the city. But the problem is, is that you've been trying to be so cool that people just think you're an idiot. And that's why Jesus, in the scriptures, in Revelation 2, he comes to the church and says, I'm so thankful that you, Ephesus, are not doing the deeds of the Nicolaitans because I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We can't be a church that's of our city. There's got to be a difference between darkness and light, even in our attempt to love our city. All right, All, all three of those attitudes are wrong biblically. We're not gonna be a church that's just in our city. There's a lot of those. We're definitely not gonna be a church that's against our city. I think the scripture's gonna blow that out of the water in just a second. And we're not gonna be a church that's of our city because even though we're gonna love them and love them well, we're gonna to continue to be salt and light in the city of Austin. So let's turn quickly to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're gonna go quickly through these scriptures. Jeremiah 29, I'm gonna give you some biblical basis for what it looks like for us to be a fourth kind of a church. Jeremiah 29. And that's what we're going to be a church, not just in our city, not against our city, not of our city. We're going to be a church that's for our city. Show you quickly, biblically, here what I'm talking about. Let me give you some background on what's going on in Jeremiah 29 4. Is that the people of God, the Israelites, have been sinning like crazy? They've been running from God, and God's always going after them. He's always wooing them back. He's always giving them grace. And they keep running. They keep worshiping other gods, sin and sinning, sinning, sinning. And finally, God brings his judgment upon them, and he raises up the, uh, the Babylonians. He sends them into Israel. The Babylonians destroy the city, and they take all the people that they didn't kill captive. And what God does in Jeremiah 29.4 is he begins to speak to these people who have just been taken into captivity because of their sin. And listen, everybody hear this. I want you to hear this. This is what God's about to do. God's about to look at his people that have just gotten wiped out and taken into captivity. And he, here's what he's going to do. He's going to tell them, Here, my people, here's how I want you to act while you're in this foreign city. I've sent you into captivity. This is my doing, not the Babylonians. And so here's how I want you to act towards these evil people. Here's how I want you to treat them. Here's how I want you to relate to them while you're in captivity. And it's interesting what he says. Jeremiah 29.4. Thus says the Lord of Hosts, the God of Israel, to all He's speaking here to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so He's speaking to them now. Watch verse five. He starts telling them what to do. He says, "Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce." Verse six: Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Watch what he says there at the end. He says, multiply there and do not decrease. God says, you're going into this pagan city. I have sent you there. And while you're there in Babylon, God said, I want you not to decrease. I actually want you to increase. And what God does there, I think, with those words is he shoots down this idea that we're supposed to assimilate so far into the culture that we lose our identity as children of God. That's why Jesus said he hates it. Okay, because here's the thing. He says, I, want, I don't want you to decrease, I want you to increase. Because the Babylonians had a real sneaky way of, ...of taking over a country. Instead of just going in and killing everybody... ...which a lot of countries would do... ...they'd go in and they'd kill a bunch of people... ...but then all the people that were left over... ...they would actually take them and bring them back to Babylon. And when they brought them back to Babylon... ...they were kind of sneaky about it... ...they would actually let those people... ...the Israelites that they didn't kill... ...they would let them live in good neighborhoods. They would give them good jobs. A lot of times they'd even let them have governmental positions... And the idea was that that they would just, instead of taking them over and killing them all, they would assimilate them into the culture. And so that two or three years down the road, there would be no more Israelites. There's just Babylonians. All right, y'all remember Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and, you know, lines then stuff. Daniel, he was a Hebrew kid, right, during the exile, during the captivity. Who was he hanging out with, the Hebrew kid? He was hanging out with the king of Babylon, right? That was their sneaky strategy to do that. And uh, again, the idea is assimilate these people into their culture so they're no longer the children of God. And that's the danger of us trying to be so culturally relevant that we lose our identity. That's why Jesus had such a big problem with it. All right? We assimilate into the culture of Austin where people can no longer tell the difference between us and the lost world. There are some of you in the room that you're falling into that trap. That it, it may be started off as I'm gonna be salt and light to my fraternity, salt and light to my sorority. I'm gonna be salt and light at work. But as you moved on down the road, you got sucked into the culture. And now if we're completely honest, you can't tell the difference between you and a lost world. And what God is saying to us is look, as you're in the city, as you're in this foreign land, and by the way, this is not your home. Don't stop being my people is what God's saying. All right, now let's jump back into the text because God's gonna talk to us about being uh, having animosity towards our city or having apathy towards our city. Look in verse five again, verse five. That says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there. do not decrease. Now watch verse seven because what God says for these people to do right here is crazy to me. God says, but, seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile folks that's a, that's an amazing statement like i just said i want you to seek the welfare of the city that i sent you into exile and pray to the lord on their behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare what god doesn't say he doesn't say hey i want you to escape the city that you're in exile. He doesn't look at his people and say to them, I want you to hate the city that has killed your family and brought you in exile. He doesn't say, I "I want you to look down on the city that's brought you in exile. God says, I want you to pray for them. And don't just pray for them. Don't just stop there. God says, I want you to seek. I want you to pursue. I want you to go after the welfare of the city that I sent you in exile. Now that word welfare right there, is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. God says, I want you to seek the shalom of this pagan city. Now, the word shalom there, a lot of times in English, it gets translated as peace, but it's a, it has a deeper meaning than that. It's a word that means not just the cessation of hostilities between two people. God's not saying, and this would have been radical for him to just say that. Hey, you know these people that just killed your husband and took all your children into captivity? Just be at peace with them. That alone would have been radical but that's not really what he's saying. What he says is even more radical. It's a word that means universal flourishing. God says, I want you to go into this city that just took you captive, destroyed your life, and I want you to pray for them, one, and then two, I want you to pursue the universal flourishing of that city. That's absolutely crazy to me, all right? Now, here's the thing. I believe that that's the principle. that that right there, that little one statement about God saying, I want you to increase. Don't lose your identity. I want you to come into the city. I want you to seek its universal flourishing. That has been one of the foundational scriptures for our church, the kind of church that we want to be here at the Austin Stone because we believe what God was saying to the Israelites there is look, and what he's saying to us is I don't want my people to be people that are just in a culture, They're just in a culture, but they're making no impact on it because they're apathetic about it. And they're just doing their own little thing. That's not the heartbeat of God for us. God's not saying, hey, I want you to be against them. Y'all are holy. They're not. So be against them. Think they need to be punished. It's just over and over again. That's not our heartbeat. It can't be our heartbeat towards our city as a church. And God's not saying you want to be of them. Yes, we want to be relevant. We want to be relevant because God's hand is on us, not because we're trying to be cool. We're not supposed to be of city. But the city. But the, but the thing God's calling us to do is to be a church and to be a people for the city, for the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. And what I think that means for us is, is pretty simple. I think that... As we live our lives, as we live our 30 years and make our impact on church history, as we make our mark and get in the fight for the Great Commission, what I think that means is a subtle mindset change, is that we, as we walk with Jesus, that we don't look at the city of Austin as something that we're here to take from. Because I think we would never maybe admit that or we even knew that we were like that. But a lot of us, truth be told, that's our view of our city is we're here because we want to take something from it. We don't view ourselves as being here for the city's welfare. We view the city as being here for our welfare. And as Christians, we are the most served people in the history of the world. Should we not in turn be the most serving people in the history of the world? And that's what is going on here. It, it just completely changes the way we view the city. We don't look at Austin as a place that we come to take from it a degree or a husband or a wife or its wealth or a career in business or, or art or sports or music or film or whatever. Um, and we, we actually think about the city as a place that God has us for a very intentional reason. In Acts, it actually says that God set your allotted time in this life and that God set for you the boundaries of your habitation. Here's what that means. That God specifically, before the foundation of the world, he looked at you and he said, I'm choosing this person right here to be in this place, Austin, Texas, and I want them there in 2014. The the, the scripture promises us that. God handpicked you to be here, right here, right now. And so the question that begs the question, why? Why? God, if you did that, if you specifically chose me in this city at this particular time in history, what does that mean? What is it that you want me to do for your glory in the short amount of time I'm here in this thing called church history? Businessman, I think that means for you that you're businesswomen, that, you're, that your business plan doesn't just include the flourishing of your family and your business. But as a Christian businessman, Christian businesswoman, we we ask ourselves the question, okay, God, you have me in the city at this time. You chose it. How do you want me to be a blessing to my employees? How do you want me to be a blessing to my city in the name of Jesus for the glory of God in the sake of the gospel? Artists. It, It means you don't just go out there and make great art for the sake of making great art, but you make great art to be a shalom uh, for the city of Austin in the name of Jesus and the glory of God for the sake of the gospel. And I'm not talking about making good Christian art. I'm, making about, I'm talking about making good art, period, for the glory of God and for the good of the city, for the name of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. Parents, teachers, administrators, if we're a church that's for our city, it means that we don't go out there and fight for good schools just so our kids can have good schools because of what God has done for us, because we're the most served people in the history of the world through Jesus, that we go out there and we serve those schools so that the city of Austin can have good schools in the name of Jesus for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel. University students, I think it's just, it's just a mindset change. You're not here you know, going to college for four, five, six, seven years to get a degree, you know, take a degree and then roll on down the road and do your thing. But the two, 3,000 of you that are going to come into this building today, what would happen if the two, 3,000 of you guys that come just to the Austin Stone were to say, okay, I have been so served by Jesus, I've been so blessed by Jesus that I'm not going to look at these years at the University of Texas just to come and take from it, but I'm going to serve it, I'm going to bless it, and I'm going to do it in the name of Jesus. What would happen if all you guys did that? Change the world. Some of you hear this, you go, well, my, that's an Old Testament concept, Jeremiah 29. I don't think it is. I think it's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. This world is dark, and you are its light. Because Jesus lives in you, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are its light. He said, You're the light of the world. This city on a hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, he said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and then they will turn and praise your father who's in heaven. That's what we do. It's not Old Testament, that's Jesus. One of the greatest examples, and I'll end the message today just with just this. I wanted, I wanted to give you just, because I could talk about our church and all the ways you're doing this already, but I just want to tell you the story I told seven or eight years ago about Charles Spurgeon and his, his church. And just how they are such a shining example of that all the way back in the 1850s of what can happen in a city when a church not only lives high the name of Jesus, but is a church that's for the city that God placed them in. I fell in love with Spurgeon back in seminary. Not really at first because of his preaching. My seminary uh, professor told me a story. He, Spurgeon smoked cigars. And I don't smoke cigars. Um, but he did. It's probably what killed him. And he would smoke them after the service. He'd preach a sermon. He'd walk out there and greet people on the way out. And he would smoke a cigar. And this old lady walks up to him one day and says, Pastor Spurgeon, when are you going to quit smoking those confounded cigars? And he said, well, madam, I'll quit smoking them when I feel like I'm smoking them to excess. And she said, well, Pastor Spurgeon, you just got finished preaching and you're already smoking one. You know, what do you consider excessive? And he said, madam, I would consider it excessive if I were smoking two at the same time. Right, And I'm as a seminary student, I'm like, I love this guy. <laughs> and I start studying him, and he is one of the greatest preachers that's ever lived. One of the greatest preachers that's ever walked the face of the earth. You want to just get your mind blown, go read Spurgeon's sermons. And, 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 but what made their church so amazing and so powerful, a Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1850s was not necessarily his preaching. That was part of it. But it was the church's love for the city and the way they impacted it. In the 1850s, Victorian era, huge industrialization going on. People were leaving farms by the thousands and pouring into the city. And as a result of that, the the population of the poor and the orphan and the widow just skyrocketed in the city of London. And as a result of that, population of poor, all that stuff just literally doubled overnight. And a lot of the churches, a lot of the churches do what a lot of churches do now when particular neighborhoods become under-resourced. What do you think they did? They ran to the suburbs, and that's what a lot of churches were doing there in London. And so the church, London or rather metropolitan Tabernacle had a question that they had to answer, and that's what kind of church are we going to be? We're going to be a church just in our city? We're just going to be about us? We're going to take care of our people. Going to have programs, I'm going to preach. We're going to be a church that's against our city that all these poor people are coming in, changing our city. We're going to look down on them. Are we going to be a church that's of the city? We're, we're not going to be salt and light, can't bring any kind of change to them. And the name of the decision, not going to be any of that. They're going to be a church that's for the city. And so they stayed right there in the middle of all the chaos. And they decided that they were going to make a difference. They were going to be for their city in the name of Jesus. And so I just wrote down a couple of things that they did. I'm, just, I'm not even scratching the surface of what this church did. I want you to think about that these were real people when I say this. These were real people that really lived in the 1850s that made up a group of people kind of like us and listen to what they did. Besides having a church that was filled to capacity every Sunday, people getting saved left and right, they built over a dozen low-income housing residences, a dozen, Low-income housing rents, as people could come when they came from the farms, they could get on their feet, they have a place to stay, live very low income until they could find a job. Until uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle did that, there was one in the city of London. Now, you think about that. The, the church, the people of the church funded that. They made it happen. They were for their city. Um, one of the things that they did was they built a 17, fu- 17 fully-funded homes for the elderly. 17 fully-funded homes for the elderly. Back then, there's no Social Security. And so if you didn't have a family that could take care of you and you are elderly, that's it. Game over. You died. And so they built these houses where where the elderly could come and be taken care of. And they could die with dignity. Church did that. The people of the church funded that, ran that. One of the coolest things I love, they did this. They built an orphanage where they housed and clothed and educated 400 orphans. Now you hear that and you go, oh, that's not that many. But then you think about it this way. You know how many orphans there are in the city of Austin? There are about 400. And so this one church, this one group of people, about 5,000 of them that went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They raised their hand and they go, you know what, the orphan, we'll take them all. We'll take them all. Just send them to us. And the church, people just like you, raise their hand and go, I'm in. I'll do whatever it takes because of what Jesus has done for me. I could go on and on and on. I got several here. I'm not going to waste your time. You get the point. They did all this stuff. But here's what happened is that as they did this stuff, as they were for their city, they began to have influence among the poor. And as they began to have influence among the poor, it didn't stop there. They began to have influence not only in the poor, but they began to have influence with the rich. And then they began to have influence with the British aristocracy. And slowly but surely, these 5,000 people just began to change. The culture of London. And not only were they impacting it theologically, not only were they impacting it spiritually, which is the most important thing, people were getting saved like crazy, but they began to see their influence in the name of Jesus begin to impact that place economically, socially, emotionally, change the city of London to the point where it was said of Metropolitan Tabernacle that had they closed their doors during that time, that if they just raised their hand and go, you know what, we're out, we're moving. If they would have just shut it down in the middle of that, it said that the city of London would have grieved. Wow. Think about that for a second. That the secular city of London would have grieved had the church just packed their bags and moved away. I don't know about you, but I want to go to a church like that. And I don't want to just go to a church like that. I want to be a part of a church like that. Where yes, the gospel on a Sunday is preached, the word of God in all its amazingness is preached with power and clarity and authority on a Sunday and people come to Jesus but at the same time the people of the church don't just huddle there and stay there but they leave the doors, they leave the four walls of the church and they go and they bless and love the city in the name of Jesus. We are the most served people that have ever lived because of Jesus, what he did for us. Should we not be the most serving people that have ever lived? I'd love for you to have the courage to ask yourself the question this morning. God, what do you want me to do? God, in light of the gospel, in light of the way that you came after me, you sought me, you found me, you changed me, you loved me. God, in the short time I have till you take me home to my heavenly city, how do you want me to serve? How do you want me to love? How do you want me to engage this city that you have me in? And when he asks you, when he shows you, you say yes, and you do it for the glory of God. All right, let's pray. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, just take a minute of your life. Thank him for the way he served you. Thank him for finding you and loving you and healing you and taking away all your sin. And just think about, maybe repent of the fact that you've just kind of been here, maybe apathetic, maybe you've been apathetic towards this city that God chose for you to be in from the foundation of the world. Maybe you've been against it. You kind of look down on people that are sinners. And maybe there's a lot, probably a lot of us in here that look kind of of it. We look a lot more like the city than we do Jesus. And maybe Jake, just a minute and let God do a work in you and speak to you and change you. Father, we know that our time here in this city on this earth is small. It's just gonna go by really fast. And, and Lord, we believe because of the scriptures that you have us here for a very specific reason. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to find it. And Lord, that we would engage it, that we would be the light of this world that you've called us to be. So that people would see our good works, see the way that we live and turn and praise our Father who's in heaven. We ask that in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.